Welcome back. I'm Gary Parr, Editorial Director, Efficient Plant Magazine. And this time I have with me Chad Chichester, and he is the Lubricants Application Engineer for the Molly Coat Specialty Lubricants at DuPont. Chad, welcome. Thanks, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Now, our topic this time is grease lubricant specification, and then we're going to uh, tie that into the new NLGI uh, high-performance multi-use grease certification. So we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, how that plays a role in specifying greases. And uh, just so people uh, will give an idea of who Chad is, he's the um, uh, lubricants application engineer for Molly Coat Specialty Lubricants, as I mentioned, and uh, Chad provides engineering and design support for lubricant end users and focuses on lubricant application and overall equipment maintenance and reliability. And uh, Chad is also a reliability engineer, has served as chair of the Society of Tribologists and Lubrication Engineers Condition Monitoring Technology Committee and been an instructor in the synthetic lubricants and condition monitoring courses. And he is also technical co-chair uh, for the NLGI's executive committee, as well as uh, a member of the NLGI board of directors. So involved in lubricants is what we're saying here. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. All right, so let's start with the basics here. When, when we're specifying a grease for a rotating asset, uh, what is our overall goal? And along with that, that uh, that line, all greases are the same, which I'm sure just grates on you. Yeah, it does. But but ultimately, I mean, the goal in specifying a grease or really any component for a for an asset or an asset assembly is optimizing the total cost of ownership over the life of the asset. Um, I mean, really, reliability is kind of central to all of this, and and. There are many facets to reliability. Um, some are technically and economically feasible and some aren't. Um, but as it pertains to grease, really choosing a grease um, impacts the asset reliability over time. As an example, if you were to choose, say, a low-cost grease because that's attractive at the procurement phase of a, of a asset commissioning or project, that low-cost grease, it, it may work in the application, but it may not. And when I say work, that means it doesn't provide the proper lubrication for the moving components. Um, when that doesn't happen, uh, ultimately, you end up absorbing you know, more maintenance costs, you have failures, you have lost productivity, and, and any of the, the um, cost savings that you might have observed at the procurement stage of a project are quickly eroded. And conversely, choosing a grease that's, that's of, of high cost doesn't really imply performance um, in the application. So, you know, even a high cost grease can be misapplied and, and ultimately results in, in poorer than anticipated reliability. And then you have an increased initial procurement cost on top of it. Um, so really the goal is to is to pick a grease that meets both the reliability and economic expectations for the asset over the life of the asset. As it pertains to grease, you know, greases can improve reliability by making sure the grease selected is really appropriate for the application. From an economic perspective, you know, that grease performance 
needs to the cost of it needs to kind of outweigh the cost of using the grease as it relates to failures and reliability. Using a lower cost grease works, but you may need to relubricate the asset more frequently, which may result in lost productivity. And if if that, those guidelines for relubrication aren't followed, then subsequent failures occur, which are, you know result in downing events and and so ultimately, the grease selection is, is just as important, if not one of the most important aspects of uh, ensuring rotating asset reliability. So basically, if you're talking about specifying a grease and people start uh, turning to their computers to websites to see how cheap a grease they can get, that's a huge red flag. That should not be anywhere near the top of, of uh, priorities. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. And then now you guys have a set of guidelines that you use to uh, help you specify and, and determine the proper greases, the, the LETS, uh, LETS guidelines? Yeah, so LETS is just, it's a, it's a convenient acronym that, that, that we use, and I've, and I've seen others use it as well. Um, and LETS stands for the load, the environment, the temperature, and the speed. So when I look at an asset and I'm trying to determine what grease I'm going to recommend or what grease I'm going to test for feasibility, I'll start by looking at, okay, what, what kind of load is, is the asset imparting on the grease? Um, and that, that load has an impact on, um, on the film thickness that can be generated in those contact areas. The environment is it's the space that the asset has to operate in. You know, it could be a corrosive environment, could be dirty, it could be wet or, or any other conditions that the asset needs to operate in. Well, the grease needs to operate in that environment as well. Um, so environment is something that, that we'll also consider. I think temperature is uh, temperature and speed are actually kind of they're looked at together. Uh, because temperature impacts the base fluid viscosity. Um, so if you think about a grease formulation, a grease formulation is 80 to 95% base fluid. And the viscosity of that base fluid changes with temperature. So if I lose viscosity because I'm operating at an elevated temperature, then I subsequently lose the ability to generate that film thickness. And that film thickness is what separates the asperities uh, from one surface to another, which is the whole point of, of using a lubricant in the first place. So if we have an understanding of what the temperature is, then we can get some estimates as to what the base oil viscosity will be and subsequently the film thickness and what that will be. When we think about speed, and, and I mentioned that speed and temperature are kind of used synonymously or at least in concert with one another, when you've got an asset with, with mating components, say like in a rolling element bearing, um, the, the lubricant needs to overcome those surface velocities to get in between the components. So you've got a rolling element that's rotating at a certain speed, and it's rotating across a, an, an inner and an outer race. That lubricant needs to get in between the rolling element and the raceways. And with surface velocity, the lubricant has to kind of overcome those surface velocities. And what allows a lubricant to flow, I guess if we go back to some more classical um, fluid mechanics, it's really about viscosity, which is a measurement of 
velocity of flow of a fluid. If the fluid won't flow to overcome the speed, then subsequently you don't get lubricant into the contact region and that film thickness that we know is so important isn't isn't constructed in the first place. So with that let's acronym it's kind of a it's a punch list for us to look at and say okay these are the, the major points i need to consider when selecting a, a a lubricant or a grease that film thickness obviously is key we all know that it's absolutely key talk about determining that and uh the role of the application engineer in helping you uh determine that and and maintaining it that discussion starts at the design phase of the asset. So we, we consider things like the physical space between a, say, rolling element and a raceway. In a pretty standard bearing configuration, we're looking at about a 400 nanometer space. So we need to get a lubricant in that space, and that lubricant needs to respond to the loads and speeds that are applied to it so that it in effect, um, forms a hydrodynamic film or a wedge between the surfaces. Really, that starts at the design phase when we're looking at how fast is the shaft going to rotate, how fast are rolling elements going to rotate around the axis of the um, of the rolling element bearing. Uh, and the same ideas apply for gears and slides and, and really any other kind of surfaces that are in contact. So as we think about film thickness, it, it starts there. Um, we also can't ignore the surface finish of those surfaces that need to be lubricated. Um, if I have a, a relatively rough surface and the whole point is to separate that rough surface from an adjacent surface, then my film thickness needs to be thick enough to separate those asperities. Uh, so we get into discussions with, with manufacturers on what the surface finishes are to make sure that the lubricant provides enough film thickness to separate the asperities. So then when, when we're acquiring and setting up uh, an asset, a new asset, or, or just even looking at the performance of an existing asset, you, you really need to take some time to look at that particular area to thoroughly understand what you're dealing with in terms of surfaces and the proper lubricant and uh, some expert help can, can really go a long way there. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, in, in the, in the projects that I've worked on, the most effective way to do that is to have uh, an asset OEM, an end user and a lubrication engineer uh, really sitting at the same table or, or, or in today's day and age on the same <laughs> web call. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to talk through their their different perspectives and different considerations when selecting a lubricant. As a lubrication engineer, I, I don't know all the details about why or how an asset was designed. Um, and, and similarly, I wouldn't expect an OEM to necessarily know that uh, one base fluid type provides a stronger film thickness than a different base fluid type. So that's where the kind of the, the different worlds of expertise come together and ultimately deliver the most effective solution for the end user who then, you know, as part of that team can can share, okay, some of the environmental type questions. How is the asset going to be used? Is it going to be used at ambient temperature or will it be at high temperature or low temperature? 
do they expect to run it on, say, a variable frequency drive so that the speed isn't necessarily 3,600 RPM, for example. Maybe it's 500 RPM. Um, all those things kind of weigh in, and collectively that that trio of, of end-user OEM and lubrication engineer can, can arrive at some uh, a pretty good consensus on what the lubricant needs to look like. Now, when you say all of that, I see people rolling their eyes and going, yeah, sure, that's a bunch of meetings and a bunch of research and blah, blah, blah. But it really is at the very crux of your long-time reliability, taking that time. It's like prep work for anything. Uh, take the time up front, and your reliability will be much higher long-term. It, yeah, for sure. And, and, and I agree. As a formal reliability engineer, I've, I've, I've done my share of eye rolling, too, when it comes to <laughs> selecting a lubricant. And, and if you look at the, the models that are used to, to estimate film thickness, they're not simple. You know, they're rooted in empirical data of studies that were done in the 70s with mineral oils. And I think often there are there are caveats to those models that that are worth considering, and, and this is really why I think, you know, the HPM specification is something that can be extremely impactful. Um, if you think about the the very the varying assets that are out there, a lot of them can kind of fall into a, I'd almost say a general purpose category. Um, a category where the speeds are, say, between 1,200 and 3,600 RPM. The loads are between 10 and 25% of the dynamic load rating for, say, a bearing. Um, the temperatures are ambient or not extremely low or extremely high. And as an engineer, I hate words like extremely because <laughs> how low is low, how high right. is high. Right. Um, but categorically, you can, you, can, you can lubricate a lot of assets with with a few lubricants as opposed to looking at the sea of lubricants and, and greases that are out there in the market today and trying to pick one. Um, and, and what what the HPM specification is, is really doing, it's, it's kind of taking a lot of that work um, and consolidating it into a specification that, that should meet um, a, a lot of, of, I would say, common applications. Um, now I, I'm careful to to say common and, and generic because <laughs> yeah, I put those um, in the same box with extremely and <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and, and I think often um, what end users are looking for is a simplification of their grease program and often what they will do is they'll look at okay I I use this grease in 80 percent of my assets I'm just going to use it in all of them. Um, because it simplifies the process and making sure that we get, you know, a grease in a bearing or a gearbox or whatever. It's it's in that space where we can run into some trouble. Um, but what the HPM spec does is it takes the most critical performance criteria of a grease and establishes some some performance guidelines. It doesn't mean that an HPM grease will work in every application. What it does mean is that if those conditions line up with the specification and the tests that are used to, to, um, to really quantify the grease performance, then you're, you're guaranteed some level of, of quality and consistency with the grease that you choose if it's got that HPM certification stamp. 
for those applications that kind of fall outside of what the HPM certified greases can do, that's still a case where you're looking at the things that we've been talking about with load, environment, temperature, and speed. And and to that note, it's good to point out that that an HPM spe specified grease shouldn't take the place of application engineering. Uh, we still need to look at the speeds, the loads, the temperatures, and make sure that even an HPM grease is going to deliver the expected performance and where it falls short, uh, maybe there are um, uh, additional greases that that maybe have the HPM certification, but they also have uh, additional features that make them good, say for water resistance or corrosion inhibition or or um, high temperature or what have you. How is this NLGI uh, HPM specification going to work? Are we going to have special labeling on containers? Uh, with specifications spelled out, or are we just going to have a certification label and then you go look up the specifications? When, when I purchase these things, how, what am I going to have to help me uh, determine the best uh, product? Yeah, so there there will be, on the packaging, there will be a, an NLGI HPM logo, if you will, that that is it's a it's a licensed use for that for that tag that goes on the product packaging. So if I were to pick up say a cartridge of grease and I look for that HPM logo, then that basically says the grease was was evaluated by a third-party laboratory and certifies that it meets the HPM specification. Um, the specification itself can be found on NLGI's website. So that lists the different tests that are applied to, to meet the certification as well as the performance limits. So for a, an end user that's swimming in the sea of, of trying to figure out what grease to use, if, if they elect to go with an HPM certified grease, then you'll find it on the packaging. Um, and if the, the grease uh, formulator or marketer or producer is really following through, they're going to have that listed on their uh, product data sheet. And they're probably going to do some marketing campaigns around, hey, we've got these HPM greases um, to try and capture people's attention. We're looking at uh, HPM specified greases. That opens the door to dealing with procurement and purchasing. How do people who are trying to get the proper greases for their assets, what bullets can we give them when it comes to people who are looking for the, the cheapest price and the fewest number of products? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and I've gone through a number of iterations with procurement organizations where where the the leading cause for selecting a product is cost, that initial cost, uh, because I mean let's face it, procurement organizations are driven to optimize their cost base, and that makes sense. Uh, I think from an engineering perspective, um, often the end user is coming at it from a performance angle, and they say, I need grease that does this, 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 and this. And and sometimes greases that are able to do all those different things are expensive. And it becomes particularly interesting when it's not a grease that is approved for use within that, that company. Mm -hmm. um, I see this a lot in automotive where they've got greases that are listed on an approved uh, uh, product list and engineers will select greases based on what's approved at their company without really putting a, enough merit 
into the um, you know the applicability of that grease and the application they're trying to lubricate. So really, it's a it 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 needs to be a a, a continual discussion between procurement and engineering. And I think, you know, I'm biased because I'm an engineer. So I think <laughs> whatever the engineer says is what should happen. <laughs> but I also recognize that our companies are in business to make money, and if we're frivolous and maybe buying a high-cost lubricant that we really don't need, then that needs to be challenged. And procurement is in a great position to challenge that and, and help engineers really figure out, hey, what do I really need? And then what are the costs associated with, with those products? And, and HPM uh, really can help engineers have that discussion with procurement because the HPM specification was derived by about 30 of the world's grease experts which included end users, and they went through and said, you know, these are the tests we need, and these are the performance criteria that that need to be adhered to to, to get the certification. So for a, for an engineer to go to procurement and say, I, I need a grease that does this, and then in concert with that, uh, grease formulators that produce and market HPM greases can say, okay, well, here are a list of 10 HPM greases, and then procurement can do its job and, and look at you know, which which one of these is the least expensive. Mm -hmm. So you've established a, a set of parameters then. All right, now find your best price within those parameters. I think it's also good to point out that, you know, I, I certainly don't want don't to um, offend any procurement professionals because they do <laughs> fantastic work. It, it's not just about cost. Sometimes it's about the business relationships that we have with other companies. So you've got preferred supplier lists, which ultimately mean maybe one of my customers that buys a lot of lubricant isn't necessarily paying the, the, the suggested retail because they buy in so much volume. And procurement professionals can really help leverage the buying power of the end user's company and achieve some, some price concessions that allow everyone to be successful, including the asset. Overriding all of this, is reliability that's that's our goal we want to increase reliability so when it comes to cost and and maintenance and it's always going to be how are we improving reliability right and reliability starts right from day one uh, from the second the first pencil is put to the drafting board and that design starts to take shape that asset is in the process of failing <laughs> and the things we do along the way help us extend the life of that asset. And I, and I think it's important um, to recognize reliability's place as a whole, but also don't, you know, don't stop thinking about reliability when we're selecting a, a grease. All right, Chad, thank you. That was uh, quite informative. I learned several things there, so always worth it. I appreciate the time and the uh, knowledge and input. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been, it's been a fun discussion. Right. Thanks to everyone for listening. 